Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and website for details. It's Annie Mack here. I'm delighted to say that my podcast, Finding Annie, is currently being sponsored by the new range of smart cars, which have, FYI, gone fully electric. And there's three types of cars in this new range. There's the 4.2 Coupe. Then there's the Smart for 2 EQ Cabrio, which means you can put the roof down. And then there's the four-seater Smart EQ for four, which gives you and your pals or your family loads of space. And importantly, you can hook them up to your smartphone. So you can listen to this podcast while you're driving, Finding Annie. Today's conversation will be triggering for some. What follows is a candid discussion touching upon mental health, suicide, sexual violence, and conversion therapy. Please listen with care. Included in this episode's show notes are links to UK-based charities and services for each of the sensitive topics discussed. Ben Ellis describes himself as a belligerent queer black man. He writes about survival, blackness, queerness, fuckboys, and the layers of our identity. Layers that he says are impermanent, transient parts of ourselves that we often shed throughout our life. We explore the emotional cost of his poetry, surviving conversion therapy, his ongoing battle with his mental health, religious trauma syndrome, and the journey he's on to use his pain to help prevent or alleviate the pain of others like him. But as is often the case, when we come together to share the deepest parts of ourselves, this vulnerable and raw conversation is punctuated with so much laughter, recognition, and kinship. We open with his reading of Pansies, his response to someone who asked him at a poetry workshop why all of his poems are sad poems. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm Busy Being Black with Ben Ellis. Dear Julia, Thank you so much for hosting a poetry workshop. Julia, I wanted to address a question you asked me. You asked me, Ben, why don't you have poems about lilies and pansies and trees? Why are all your poems so angry and so sad? Julia, all my poems are sad nigger poems, and I don't have poems about lilies and shit. 
But I do have a poem about all of my friends, real and imaginary, dead and alive. I have a poem for all the times I felt more dead than alive. I have a poem for every suicide attempt I've ever had. And I have a poem for that one time I overdosed on antidepressants, which is just as ironic as drowning on a lifeboat. I have a poem for every time I sat on an airplane hoping it would crash. I have a poem for crash landings. I have a poem for forgiveness before a crash landing, you know. Forgive yourself before you forgive the person sitting next to you. I have a poem for every time I crossed the road to make a white lady more comfortable. I have a poem for every time I felt I could not take up space. I have a poem for every time I rebelled and went to a straight open mic night and performed a poem about queer love or queer life or queer redemption or just sucking dick. But you, you want a poem about nature, don't you? You want lilies and flowers and pansies and petunias, don't you, Julia? I got your flowers. So here we go. One, you offered yourself up to me as a bouquet and I took you in gladly. Until I looked and realized you'd only offered yourself up to me as a bouquet of thorns, meaning I thought the next man was going to be my reward for everything the last man put me through. Instead, he was only more I had to go through, meaning why the fuck do we inflict ourselves upon each other? This is a metaphor for my love life too. Every time I look at myself in the mirror, I avoid eye contact. Apply moisturizer on this cement skin and know exactly how to apply it brick by brick. But today, or oh, today I looked. Today I looked and I saw flowers. I saw th- petals and I loved them. I saw thorns and I loved them too. I saw pansies growing out of this cement skin. And oh my God, I cried. This is a metaphor for my body image. Three, someone once told me that pansies can grow through cement. That when they buy concrete, they bloom. And isn't that a metaphor for blackness? And isn't that a metaphor for brownness? And isn't that a metaphor for queerness? And isn't that a metaphor for everything other, everyone made to feel other, other than the most beautiful metaphor like all of us here tonight? So there you go. Some poems about flowers and shit. Don't ask me what all my poems about nature have to do with loss. I can't tell you about the tree that hasn't seen the lynching. And I can't tell you about the crimson ground that hasn't seen the bodies. See you, when you talk about water, you talk about deep blue seas and clean oceans. But when I think about water, I think about how it's been 1,557 days since Flint, Michigan has had any resemblance of clean water. When I think about water, I think about how if the rapture were to happen right now, how you would have a whole sea of black Bodies, a whole ocean of black niggas rising out of the blue, walking up to the shore, walking up your avenue, walking up to your doorstep, knocking on your door like, is this the nature you wanted? Julia, when you talk about flowers, I think about my uncle and the flowers have been asked to choose for his casket. Passed away last weekend, took his life while going through an overdose of my same antidepressants, which is just as ironic as him drowning on my lifeboat and I wonder... If I could bring him back, what flowers could I place in his casket? What flowers can I put him back to life? I chose pansies. Someone once told me that when they buy concrete, they bloom. I think my favorite part of pansies is when I think about water, I think about how if the rapture were to happen right now, you'd have a sea of black bodies, an ocean of black niggas rising out of the blue, walking down your doorstep, knocking on your door, asking you, is this the nature you wanted? Right. I, how did you even see that? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, one, one thing I realized is that um, some audiences, usually privileged audiences, when they go to poetry 
night or spoken word nights where the audience is predominantly black or POC or marginalized, um, they have their expectations. Mm. It's kind of like oppression safari almost, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and I realized that I need to be careful of who I perform to because of who is in the audience. And so um, that actually did happen uh, where someone, you know, this lady, um, whose name is not actually Julia, you know, so uh, she, you know, she asked me, you know, the, the portrait that you turned out today was great, but it was very sad. And I thought, well, I, 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 I'm not going to be happy, nigga, because I'm not. <laughs> so, um, but there is this expectation that you need to write about, you know, nature and flowers and hummingbirds. And I can't relate to that. When I, when I think about trees, the first image that comes to mind is just lynchings. When I think about ground i think of when i went to ghana and i went there for a funeral that the, the crimson ground that was there and the whole symbolism behind it like there's always symbolism behind nature for some reason mm. when it comes to us black folks um i don't have the privilege to talk about you know carousels and ponies and stuff well i think that symbolism in nature is all of us right right mm. regardless of race mm -hmm. right what we see in nature mm -hmm. i think what we interpret those symbols to be mm is quite another matter. Right. Right. Exactly. Irish poets look at the ocean in, in a much different way As than perhaps an African poet might. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And and those expectations, I think I, I forget who was talking about this, but this expectation that black people through their art should be mm -hmm. hopeful. Right. Which is probably what this this Julia character is yeah. alluding to mm -hmm. that we perhaps have a responsibility as, as black people to look for the hope within the struggle. Right, yeah. Which I don't necessarily agree with. Mm. I mean, that poem just so happens to have a quote-unquote happy ending where I think, you know what, I found the flowers that I can lay on my uncle's casket. They're pansies because of that metaphor. Great. But not all black poetry ends with, you know, a happy ending. Some of it ends with a question. Some of it ends with, I'm still, I'm still dealing with this period. Mm. Like I said, nature is one thing, but the way we look at it depends a lot on our experience. So talk to me about the genesis of Ben Ellis, the poet, mm -hmm. and, and how you came to realize that, that A, you could write it or that you wanted to write it. Mm -hmm. and, and was there some sort of external um, validation or acknowledgement that you are a poet <laughs> that helps you kind of come into that? That's kind of three questions in right. one, but I, okay. I want to give you that space. So I've always loved poetry and literature. And I was born and raised in Northern Italy where everything around me was poetry, literature, architecture, the arts. Um, however, I was never taught any black poetry or any black literature at school. Um, and the only one day when we would talk about diverse poetry would be white poets, like white women poets. Um, and it was only when I came to London years later um, and I was just, I was causing this YouTube vortex at night, and I just thought, oh, poetry. And I stumbled on Deaf Poetry Jam, and I thought, wait a minute, so black people do poetry too? Since <laughs> when? Uh, um, and I just, you know, I saw all of these amazing poets, some of whom still perform to this day, and that's what validated my writing, because I had been writing for years, but I thought, right. because I don't see myself out there, this can't be poetry, these are just words that come nicely together. I think one thing about us poets is that when we have the urge to put words down, we just have to. And I thought, okay, that's a great piece of writing, but I kind of really call that a poem because I don't see anyone out there who looks like me who calls themselves a poet. Right. Um, but then I found, uh, I think the first 
modern or contemporary black poet that I found was Dante Collins and then Daniel Smith, Crystal Valentine. And I thought all of these great people, young and black and queer like me, are kind of either paving the way or they're just representing a part of me that There's I didn't a tribe think. There. It's a right, tribe yes. I'm not alone. I'm not on my own. And that's how I started um, writing with the intent to perform, writing with the intent to share. Because I always thought I'm just going to write for my, my space. I'm only going to write for my small audience of people who are just as quirky as I am. But now I write and I go and perform to an audience of other black folks or other QPOC folks or mm. um, just other audiences that can relate in some way. I'm, I'm very curious about the performance of our pain as well. Mm. And so obviously you, you use poetry as this, what I imagine is ostensibly a release. Right. Of, as you said, you feel compelled to put these things mm-hmm. down on the page. How do you, how do you revisit this, this trauma or this pain in your poetry when you have to perform it? So last year, I thought that I could still perform while grieving, and I realized that that is not a healthy way to deal with grief or with trauma. Um, poetry cannot be a replacement for therapy. Art cannot be a replacement for therapy. You can use them in tandem, that's great, but it shouldn't be a replacement for the other. So because I was literally misusing poetry, um, I would perform poetry on stage (laughs) while my wounds were still open because I thought, this looks nice. Like I can uh, talk about a breakup while having just been broken up with because poetry about fuckboys are lit and people love it. <laughs> but that is not healthy. Um, and I think another uh, another thing as well is that poets, whether we'd like to admit it or not, part of us also does lack the validation. So if you go to a spoken word night, mm. the clicks, the mmm, mm. right? Or people just feel like, ooh, okay, right? Those small responses small or big responses like you craved after a while and i got addicted to it to the point where i thought the more intense the poet like intense and sincere and honest the the poem is the better it is and it's so funny because to to hear you perform Mm -hmm. your pain Mm -hmm. validates my own right it makes me feel less alone in my own pain right but then to know that that comes at a cost that doesn't cost me anything right right to Mm -hmm. feel that um, to feel that recognition or that validation that that my pain mm-hmm. can have such beautiful lyricism attached right. to it, <laughs> yeah. But that comes at great cost to you, the poet, yeah, the performer. It's a quote unquote free art, but it can be quite expensive, um, especially with me being a serial introvert. It takes a lot of energy for me to go to a crowded space like that, get on stage, speak in front of people, and talk about personal stuff like this. I mean, I, I also do talk about tech conferences and marketing events, but that doesn't really faze me because I'm talking about something objective. But when it comes mm. to talking about mental health, depression, me grieving the loss of an uncle who died in a way that I was hoping to die last year and thinking, oh, wow, okay, that actually happened. And then performing that poem three weeks after his loss. So... Yeah, it can be quite personal, but also very expensive. And that's why I've learned I need to have a safe distance between myself and my, po- uh, and my pain and 
the output of it. Can we touch on that, the passing of your uncle? Yeah, sure. Um, you said he passed away last weekend, took his life while going through an overdose of my same antidepressants, mm-hmm. which is just as ironic as him drowning on my lifeboat. Right. I, I <laughs> it took a while for me to um, go to my GP and say, uh, well, first of all, come out as queer and then come out as black queer because there's a whole underlining thing there <laughs> yeah. and then come out as someone who might be suffering from mental health and then after I talked to her about this you know this is what I'm going through she said oh d- d- you're definitely going through some mental health stuff here uh, it took a while for me to actually take antidepressants because I thought my family doesn't believe in mental health um, interestingly enough there is no word in my family's native tongue for depression and my family's stance on that is that if there's no word for it, you can't conjure it. You can't bring it back to life. It cannot exist. Which, again, that can lead us on a conversation about language uh, in totally, our communities. Totally. Um, but to them, it's more like, well, this doesn't exist in our language. This cannot exist, period. It took a while for me to actually take this matter in my own hands and think, actually, mental health does exist in my own existence. It's a part of who I am. So I'm going to take antidepressants. And I've always looked at them as kind of like a lifeboat. Um, some days I feel like I'm waiting. Some days I feel like I'm drowning. Some days I feel like I'm just pirouetting, you know, on the beach or whatever. <laughs> but I go through ups and downs, but I always have that life that I can always count on. And that has been my advent calendar for two years now. And then I got a call from my mother saying, oh, you know, your uncle passed away. He had a few, you know, things in his system. Antidepressants being one of them. See, I always told you that antidepressants are the devil. And again, I thought that, that I had that call around the same time when I was having suicidal thoughts. And I thought, oh, wow, he part of me and this might sound a bit messed up, but part of me envied that, that he got to get away on this lifeboat. Um, and that was the last time I had a suicidal attempt, the 27th time last year. And I wrote a poem for each and every time that I had it. And that was what stopped it. Cause I thought. Yes, I can have these lows and churn out some great poetry out of it, but I too deserve to be happy, feel happy. I deserve to answer, I'm happy when someone asks me, how are you, and actually mean it on purpose. I think our our conversation around suicide is so lacking. Mm. Um for World Suicide Prevention Day last year, I remember I did an Instagram post about not ever not ever having attempted to take my own life, mm. but understanding why people might make that decision. Right. 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 Like being able to look around and to say, this is not okay, mm. right? That, that I don't want anyone to do. Obviously, right. I think that hopefully we can all do this together. Um, and it's important that people know that you know that you're not alone. Right. Um, but that's... I have I have space. I understand. I feel like I might understand mm. why people make these decisions. Mm-hmm. So I understand that envy. Mm. And it was an envy as well as um, again that was around the same period. I wasn't really using poetry in a healthy way. So I stopped and I had a breakdown afterwards, and I realized that when I was having the occasional happy mood, I was feeling guilty because I thought, mm. I'm depressed. I've got severe anxiety. Why am I smiling? And also, what use is this happiness to me? 
at the time when I was using poetry as a, as, as a replacement for therapy, I thought, I cannot be writing happy poetry. I'm not going to write about hummingbirds now. Like, who does that? I don't do that. Right. Um, like, point me to a black poet who writes about happy shit. <laughs> um, and then in the times when I was feeling really depressed and having breakdowns, part of me was kind of hoping that this feeling could linger on a while longer because I thought this could actually be useful. As in the pain is useful. The pain wow. is useful because someone is out there having the same pain, but they can't really articulate that or they can't really put that into anything. But, but that's, that's, a, that's an amazing insight to have mm. in, the, in the midst of that pain, right? Mm-hmm. To, to think to yourself that what you're, what you're effectively saying is that this pain is for something. Right. Like, I'm, I, I'm not going to, if I'm going to suffer this much, I'm not going to suffer in vain. I'm going to make sure that something comes out of it. Now, that is also borderline unhealthy because then you sure. kind of revel in this feeling of, I just don't want to be here. That's a suffering artist as well. Right, right? yeah. Um, but at the same time, I do make sure that when I do go through moments like this, I want deal with it in a healthy way, but also to make it useful in some way. And are, are there steps that you've taken to to move yourself forward, if, mm. if forward is even the right way of, of asking mm-hmm. that? But are there steps that you're taking now that that are that you find helpful? Therapy is great. <laughs> therapy. I started go- going back to a th- to the therapist now after a really bad experience with my last one, and it's it is a privilege. I completely understand that, but it's one of those things that if you can afford it, go for it. Mm. Um, taking antidepressants regularly, not drinking. Because if you drink and take antidepressants, it's for nothing. Um, you can take a napa and a downer at the same time. Um, and not drinking has been a godsend. Really? Yeah. And I, I thought, you know what? I, I am blessed with a liver that can take a punch. I've never <laughs> been drunk ever in my life. I don't even know what a hangover is. Um, and, and I thought, you know what? I'm not even drinking wine. This is just grape juice that happens to be fermented like what's right, the big deal right. um, but then I realized actually no that's like I, I would I would recur to alcohol as a way to deal with things and that's not healthy either so it's about sitting down and thinking okay when I go through a bad mood what do I do and most of the things that I listed down whether it's food and food is good whether it's alcohol whether it's whatever it, none of it was a healthy way to cope with things but poetry still is on the list. But at least now is healthy poetry. So yes, it can be poetry about pain, but in a healthy way. And I know that, okay, I'm going to give myself some time before I perform this. I'm not going to perform it while the wounds are still fresh. So yes, it is still honest and genuine. And people can come to me and ask me questions about it. And I can tell them about it. But at least I'm not grieving on stage. When do you know when the wound is not fresh? Because I, I wrote a piece about my dad and I mm-hmm. performed it at the at Nash Paragon's mm-hmm. um, open mic night and started crying. And I, and I didn't even I didn't even realize that right. it was still a it was still a fresh wound. Right. And I was so caught off guard mm-hmm. by that 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 I pressed there, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Oh fuck, <laughs> painful." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I believe that everyone's got their own signals, but the signal that works for me is that if I don't feel present in myself while I'm reciting this, I'm still grieving. Oh, as if as if you can't be in that moment right. with that pain side by side. Right. If I can't look at that pain in the face, I've not completed my 
grieving process. So th- this poem that I performed, Pansies, um, the last two times that I performed it, I don't remember being on stage. I don't remember performing it. There are videos of me doing it. I'm thinking, oh, that's cute, I was on stage. I don't remember the act of me leaving my seat, getting on stage, looking at the audience. I don't even know what the audience looks like because as a safety mechanism, I kind of had to remove myself from there. And I then came back in myself when I went back to my seat. And that is a sign to me that I was still grieving. However, I can remember other times when I performed poetry after having dealt with what I was talking about. And I remember having fun with it. Like uh, uh, the, the poem Milkshake, for instance, um, that wasn't painful to me. That was actually a fun poem to perform. Uh, and yes, it was belligerent and whatever, but I remember each and every second of me being on stage. I remember seeing your face. I remember seeing Miss um, Philippa Kojima, who is oh, absolutely adorable. <laughs> and I remember that experience, mm-hmm. but I think it says a lot if my mind just blocks out a memory of me doing something that is so dear to me, like performing poetry. Totally. Let's go into Milkshake, actually. Yes. So I'm the only black person where I work, right? Which means that for some reason, white people have made me the black ambassador for everything black. Which means that should there be any questions about anything black, I'm the go-to person to help answer those questions. Questions may vary. Questions may range from, what's a trap house? To, what does it mean to be bad and bougie? Like, can I be bad but not bougie or do I have to be both simultaneously? Do they have congestion charge in a trap house? You know, questions like that. As part of your role as a black ambassador, it is your responsibility to make sure that your white colleagues do not say the word nigger when Kanye West Gold Digger is playing at the company party. And even though you know damn well that the DJ is going to play Gold Digger at the company party. And at this company party, my colleague Rebecca, who incidentally is called Rebecca, Becky sees me from across the room being one with the wallpaper, you know, introvert tonight. And she walks over to me as the DJ now plays Kalis Milkshake. And as Milkshake plays, she dances over to me, dancing to the words but not the beat. And she asks me, Ben, does your Milkshake bring all the balls to your yard, honey? This is what I wish I told her. Girl, my Milkshake is the reason why the boys stay in the yard, honey. Make them never want to leave the yard, honey. Make them want to leave their jobs and take permanent residence at my yard, honey. Make them call HMRC like, hello? Yes, that's me. Yes, I would like to officially change my address to the yard, honey. Shit, with my Milkshake, I teach tops how to use poppers properly and I teach bottoms how to douche perfectly with warm water and four drops of vanilla extract so your cakes actually taste like cakes, honey. As a matter of fact, we don't even use labels in the yard honey everybody's free to experiment sexually with whoever they choose and please including themselves in the yard honey and nobody gives a fuck about your masculinity problems in the yard honey nobody homophobic biphobic transphobic femphobic fatphobic slut shaming ableist ages a fascist sexist racist or a bigot of any kind honey and ain't no brexit trump theresa may nigel farage rachel dolezo the dup or random police searches in the yard honey Straight people ain't even allowed in the yard, honey, and everybody queer in the yard, and we're all rooting for everybody black and everybody brown and any other minority marginalized, misrepresented, and underrepresented in my yard, honey. We teach kids how to dip, serve, swerve, and death drop in the yard, and kids don't have to fear death for how they move their wrists in the schoolyard because nobody dies in the yard, honey. The yard is our paradise, our safe space. 
the home we make our heaven because too many of my queer brothers and sisters and gender non-conforming siblings have had their bodies taken away from them, their souls homeless, when home was just a stone throw away. And I have a fistful of stones covered in milkshake. Wondering how many stones we need to throw before we realize that these days we are our own stone wall. I am the mayor of this kingdom and I share it with everybody marginalized, everybody dead, everybody alive but not living, everybody fighting, everybody feeling the heat in the pits of a closet too crumb to be welcoming, honey. And everybody here is called honey and everybody's welcome and everything is sweet and wounds do not exist we kiss our wrists with lips full of honey and tell each other wow i'm so glad you made it through yesterday and i'm so proud that you're alive today honey and scars the beautiful tattoos on your skin that we celebrate and every skin color we celebrate and every skin tone we celebrate and every gender and sexuality we celebrate and every intersection we celebrate and every day is your birthday and we celebrate you anyhow anyway and everyone's represented, and everybody free, and everybody free, and everybody free in the yard, honey. I had a conversation with Reverend Jide McCauley, mm-hmm. as you know, from the House of Rainbow. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very interested in this idea, um, how, if, can we reclaim our relationship mm. to God, to the church? Um, can we heal after all the pain that's been caused? And. I want to know, you contributed to that conversation by sending me um, some questions that you had. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is our first time talking since, well, in, in person since then. And so I'm curious how that conversation with Reverend G.D. landed with you. I love that conversation. And personally, I love Reverend G.D. He's an absolutely amazing star. Um, but as someone who's going through... Um, religious trauma syndrome and it's an actual syndrome of people who have gone through whether it's conversion therapy or some trauma because of religion um i do find religion quite triggering like i can't go out and see a mormon guy cycling and not feel a rush down my spine like okay um so is it possible to rekindle the love for church i think some people can and i love that they can Personally, I am happy without that relationship. Um, And I think that I'm also still working mentally with this is why I cannot go to a church without feeling violence. And it's, in a way, a similar relationship to, uh, you know, that I have with myself and the Black Barbershop, for instance. I cannot just go there as a black queer body and not feel like I need to readjust myself in a way and so religion to me is similar if not an even deeper relationship because so many people attach the whole identity to a church a religion and i can't picture myself doing that anymore i mean you experienced quite a violation at the hands of the church right yeah i mean my very first memory um like ever was going to a church I was raised in a very religious household. My father was Pentecostal. My mother was Christian of another denomination, which I shan't mention. And um, it was great because I remember going to the Pentecostal church, which was, you know, everybody dance now, right? We had food, we had drinks, we had, you know, we were shouting up and down. People were just speaking in tongues. I was trying it because I thought, hey, I can speak it. And then 
the following Sunday will be going to this uh, predominantly white church where everything was somber and you're like let's raise up sit down raise up sit down sing hymns and I started very early having my own relationship with God with the church with religion to the point where I started preaching when I was six really converted my father to my mother's church when I was nine and got baptized when I was ten I was this prodigy, prodigy child in my church to the point where they all thought, you are going to be a missionary. And I actually loved that because I thought, I love studying the word. I read the Bible back and forth so many times to the point where if someone were to quote Leviticus on me, I can quote some more. Yeah, <laughs> on I mean, we know Leviticus. Yeah. We know Leviticus. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, I also knew that there was a part of me that couldn't reconcile with that. Do you mean reconcile Leviticus and or the Bible in, in and your queerness? In, in your right. Um, so I thought, you know, I can pray about it, but there's only so much prayer that you can do on yourself before you realize that this is yourself. This is your identity for a reason. And yes, we are all made up of layers and we sometimes wear them like coats wherever we go. So we wear a coat. I wear a coat when I go to a black barbershop and I'll wear another coat when I go to a queer poetry night. Um, but when I would go to church, I remember just having to shed so much of myself that I didn't recognize myself in a way. And, and so it, it took coming here to the UK and uh, discovering queerness, discovering that one, um, there's lots of gay people. <laughs> um, two, yes, I am queer, but also three, the question being, can I be queer and black and African and an immigrant and religious? And I thought that that was a bit too much and I had to get rid of some of uh, some away. And um, in the end, things happened and I was sent through conversion therapy from my own family. And it was a process that lasted two or three years. It was a long process. Sorry, you were in conversion therapy for, for three years. Yes, and I am lucky enough to have survived it. Clearly did not work, because <laughs> now I'm more queer than before. But now I understand what my queer identity means to me. So I think many of us don't know mm. what the process of conver conversion therapy looks like. Right. Are you okay to talk about what that is? Sure, yeah. Um, so conversion therapy is, in a nutshell, the a quote-unquote therapy that aims to turn queer people straight through various methods. Usually when people think about conversion therapy, they think of Mormonism because in a way they've, uh, they, they are famous for doing that. There is a movie that came out, a movie and a book actually that came out recently by Garrett Conley called A Boy Raised. Uh, it took me a while to get through the book because I could not read it and not see myself in there as well. And it was this um, this queer writer talking about his past in the Mormon church and being sent through conversion therapy as well uh, and coming you know, on the other side of having survived it. Um, but it is a painful process. I went through it because I thought that this is the right thing for me to do, but 
there are so many techniques that are used as part of it that are pretty much mental manipulation. And no one leaves, ment uh, no one leaves conversion therapy healthy. The decision mm -hmm. to go into conversion therapy, because right. you said you thought it was mm -hmm. the right thing to do. Yes. Why? Because, um, so, trigger warning, sexual assault. But on my 16th birthday, I was sexually assaulted. And um, I was living with that pain for months until I then confessed to an elder of the church. And he said to me, uh, this is clearly a seed of homosexuality here. So if that happened to you, you clearly must have wanted that to happen to you. Because nothing can happen to you if you don't want it. Th th that, that was the rationale that he used on me. So he told me that um, on the A406 we were moving, it was 60 miles per hour, because I remember looking at him in the dashboard, and he, t he said, you've got two options now, because you've got a bright future ahead of you. Like You're mentoring all of these kids at church, you're mentoring adults, you're converting people, you've got a, a whole religious career here, you cannot tarnish your name, your surname, your family name, and the church by now being gay. Black people aren't gay. That was the whole thing. So the two options are you either A, leave the church, but as part of that, no one in the church can have contact with you. And that includes the family as well. Or two, you go through conversion therapy and your family needs to be aware of that as well. And hence why, to this day, I still say that my family took me through it, but it was also a conscious decision. Um, I mean, I was 16 when the assault happened, but I entered therapy when I was 18, I believe, because I had to be of age for certain things to appear, for certain mm -hmm. things to happen. So I do know that it was a conscious decision that I took do I regret it in some ways? Yes, but I feel like in a way, because there's not a lot of conversation happening these days about conversion therapy in the UK. So I am glad that I can talk about it openly because it probably is someone listening to this podcast, podcast right now who is black and queer or POC and queer thinking, oh, well, I'm going through this as well. Wait, some people can actually survive this? They don't actually have to f fake being straight? Yeah, and I think it's... I think the, the sexual assault and is, is obviously important, and, and we're, we're both survivors in, in mm. that respect, so I'm sorry that happened to you. Mm. Um, part of this narrative around conversion therapy mm -hmm. doesn't, doesn't address how one gets to it. Right. Right? right. And I think it's, um, it's so insightful mm -hmm. to know that this is a decision that you entered into because you, were, you had been hurt. Right. And you thought, this was the right thing to do at the time. Right. I mean, there are only two things I fear. One is unfulfilled potential, and two, disappointing people. Mm. And those are big. Those are big. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and the, the elder knew what he was saying when he proposed those two options, because again, by proposing those two options, it makes you feel like, okay, you are choosing to take this therapy then. They're not imposing it on you. Right. Well, literally, the alternative to that is being homeless, being kicked out at 16, 17, 18. I didn't know about the Albert Kennedy Trust back then, mm. right? Mm. I know about it now. I'm a firm supporter. I donate every month because I'm thinking, had I taken the other option, I hope I could have relied on them. Mm. Um, I hope at least I, I knew about them enough to, you know, to rely on them. Um, but 
th those are all mental tactics that they use to make you feel like this is in your own hand. Everything you do here as part of therapy, we're not do doing this to you. You are doing this to yourself to cure yourself of this malady that you have. You said earlier that you came out more queer. <laughs> mm. <laughs> right. It certainly helped you kind of, <laughs> it brought into relief your queerness. Right, yeah. Talk to me about that and unpack that for me. Sure. One, I realized that it's not just being gay or straight. And on McKinsey's scale, I'm more of a, you know, from one to six, I'm more of a four. Like, Interesting. Yeah. From, you know, from gay to bi, but like, I, I just call myself queer because also of the, militant and political side of totally. my queerness as well. Mm -hmm. Just me being black and queer is a political act. Mm -hmm. And me being here talking about it on a public podcast, <laughs> political. <laughs> yes, sir. Right. Yeah. Um, coming out of that therapy and actually going through real therapy out of it to undo the damage that was done in those three years, I had to learn that I need to be comfortable in my own skin. And it's, it's a process that takes time. Um, I have to be comfortable realizing that I am queer and African. I am queer and black. I'm also black and African and just happen to be queer. Like all of the different mm -hmm. ways that I can be me. Uh, so when people say, oh, but wait, aren't you black first? I'm black first and black also. I'm queer first and Oof. queer also. There are so many parts <laughs> of me. There are so many parts of me that I can't just... Like, one doesn't take precedence over the other. Mm. All of them make me me. Totally. Right? Um, and I had to realize that and realize that for me to be able to say that I mean it, I need to understand what queerness actually is. I need to understand the sexuality part of it. I need to understand the identity part of it, the political part of it as well. But also need to understand the part that I play in this. So how can I make sure that what happened to me doesn't happen to other people as well? Because the conversion therapy happened in Leytonstone, just around the corner. People seem to think it only happens in rural areas of the U.S., like Utah or whatever. But white not. people, yeah. It happened in E17, <laughs> like just locally here. And it's still going on. This church is a very big, famous church that's still doing this underground. And I just shudder at the thought of how many other kids are going through this because the alternative is being homeless. What would you say to mm -hmm. a younger Ben? Mm. One, it's not cliche to think that it gets better. See, when the whole It Gets Better campaign um, came out with Dan Savage, I thought, you know what? Yes, I too can come out because Tyler Oakley told me I can. And Dan Savage told me I can. And all this why YouTubers told me that I can. So yes, it does get better. <laughs> um, and then the conversion therapy happened and I started feeling resentful of the queer community because I thought, where were they when I was going through this? So I would secretly every now and then go to Soho because maybe I had a work meeting in Leicester Square and I would say, you know what, I'm just going to walk through Soho to get there. <laughs> yeah, that's, that means I'm going to be five minutes late, but I, I just want to see how the gays live. And seeing all these people just being free in who they are, seeing someone drinking coffee and being gay, I thought, that's a privilege. And now looking back, I'm thinking, yes, it has gotten better. And, and, and to me, it keeps getting better. And I would say to a younger Ben, just hold on there. Yes, you will get through some stuff, but there is a reason. There is a purpose there. 
don't lose sight of that purpose. Yeah, I, I ask because, you know, it happened in Leightonstone, mm. right? right. around the corner. And as you said, there could be someone listening right. who's in this position. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think hearing you tell yourself that it's okay, that it gets better, right. is beautiful mm. and healing. Can you read to Orlando? Yeah, sure. Don't give the Uber driver the address to that gaber. Always stop a block away. Because Ahmed from the other night told you the way you were going was haram and that in his country you'd be in jail or better off, dead. And Christopher from the other other night, he told you to call on the Lord. He told you to repent and baptize yourself away from sin. So I baptized myself under the sweat of strangers in a bathhouse, follow the ritual dances of men and women and genderqueer folk on a dance floor moving to the rhythm of the same heartbeats for as long as you have a heartbeat. Finding myself in the smile of strangers sharing a common hope of freedom and joy in a common fear and terror that someone will come in and with a gun and shoot all 49 of us, Orlando. I've not been okay since Orlando. And yet, people have been in my mentions talking about how 49 queer folks could have lived if they had had guns with them. Which is to say how they could have prevented their own deaths. Which is to say how they could have lived if they hadn't been so out and so proud and so queer and worst of all alive. Which is to say how they would have lived if they hadn't lived. Which is to say how they deserve to die. My social media stream is constant with people explaining why every dead queer person deserves to die. And how every black person was just asking for it. Like, why didn't he try self-defense against those bullets? Like, why was he out trying to buy tea and Skittles at night? Who buys tea and Skittles at night? Like, why was she driving anyway? And why did he pull out his wallet when the cop says license and registration, please? Like, why was he trans in public? And why does a trans woman want to use a public restroom? And why were they queer in public? And why was he black in public? And why was she black in public? Why do you people still think that you're free in the land of the free? This is the season of unseasoned racism. People will always find a reason for bigotry, so please, take care of yourself. Step out and take a breath. Look out if it helps. Look out if it helps. Look out if it helps. See, you are supernatural, because when you're drowning, you can still breathe underwater, so you might as well turn that water into wine while you're at it. Turn tears into Hennessy. Turn soul-crippling blues into blues you can actually dance to. Turn sorrow into poetry. I know, I know. I know sometimes it's hard to tell if you're depressed or just alive in 2019. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're so talented. It's so beautiful. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's really so beautiful. You know, to close, I ask all of my guests mm-hmm. the same question. What do you hope for? Peace of mind. I can prepare it. <laughs> <laughs> I hope for <laughs> peace of mind peace of mind when i go out and i see someone who's religious and not feel triggered by it peace of mind when i think back at the first time that i saw reverend gd mccauley for instance and the first night that i saw him i was just hiding from him because i thought what does this black pastor want from me because I thought it was just there to infiltrate and see, okay, who can I convert here? It was not until later that he got on the stage and he talked about House of Rainbow that I thought, wait, so black people can be religious and black and African as well? And queer. And queer. Yeah. 
Um, Allegedly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, the, the, the peace of mind for you to actually get to that stage and be able to go to a poetry event and say, I know what you're going through. I've built something for people like you. Come. It takes courage. It takes strength. It takes queerness in all extents of blackness, but it also takes peace of mind to do that. And that's something that I am working towards, just peace of mind. Because I don't want what happened to me to happen to other people. And I always want to help wherever I can. But I also know that I need to take care of myself. Ben Ellis is a poet, survivor, and queer black man based in the UK. In the show notes, you'll find links to his work and a number of UK-based charities and services that support LGBTQI people who may be struggling with or through any of the sensitive topics we've explored today. Know that you are not alone. There is a world of people here for you who love you. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride and Blackout UK, and to you, the listeners. Remember this, your support doesn't cost any money. Retweets, shares, ratings, and reviews all help, so please keep the support coming. Finally, thank you to Anthony Giles, a queer black Grammy-nominated producer based in New York City, for these bomb-ass Busy Being Black beats. Ashe. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.